The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. Stocks steady ahead of today's U.S. inflation print as investors hold their breath for clues on how long the Federal Reserve will keep interest rates elevated. Shock on Downing Street, ex-UK Prime Minister David Cameron makes a political comeback, taking up the role of Foreign Secretary as Rishi Sunak gambles big on a cabinet reshuffle. I want to do everything to strengthen our alliances, to work with our friends, to build those vital partnerships, to make sure our country is secure and prosperous in a difficult and dangerous world. That work starts now and I've got to get on with it. Siemens Energy shares surge on a report. The troubled German company slated to announce details of a deal on a state aid guarantees as soon as tomorrow. And European Union officials finalized last details for a 12th package of measures against Russia as the bloc sanctions envoy ups the pressure, telling CNBC the efforts are working. It may be more a slow puncture than a blowout of the, of the Russian economic tire, but the air is escaping and it is becoming increasingly difficult to manage. It's the next big data release later on today. We get the latest read on U.S. consumer prices inflation today, with Wall Street holding its breath for what could be a tricky set of numbers for the Fed. Reuters sees October's headline figure coming in at 3.3% for the year. That would be way down on its more than 9% peak back in June 2022. However, core inflation, and this is key, core inflation is expected to stick at 4.1%. That's more than double the Fed's target still, and comes as the New York Fed's Consumer Expectations Survey shows Americans see headline inflation at 3.6% a year from now. Those inflation expectations still quite key in terms of the narrative of where we're going on inflation. Now, as for the U.S. markets, it was a bounce for the Dow. Energy stocks are worth noting as we take a look at the various different sectors in the market. It was a Boeing, of course, number one headline act. The number orders coming through from the Dubai Air Show. That was a, a real driving factor for Boeing stock. 95 new aircraft from Emirates Airlines. So that was a, a big mover. But if you look at the sectors in session, utilities down one and a quarter percent. The best performer was energy, hence uh, the bounce you saw on the likes of the Dow. Uh, about uh, seven tenths of a percent higher for the energy sector. So uh, just over a tenth higher for the Dow. In contrast to the faith you're seeing elsewhere on the S&P, the Nasdaq, Apple, one of the big moving stocks to the Dow side and investors are just noting that some of that fatigue coming back in to the tech space where there's been a lot of appetite in recent weeks what uh, 10 polls of sessions out of 11 so we did have a fade in session yesterday as the market pulled back so effectively uh, we're seeing a, a slight uh, drop here just uh, two tenths down on the Nasdaq to the Treasury market quite a bit of movement in the bond markets yesterday investors saw a much higher before then a fade on that 10-year so we got up to 4.69 at one point. You can see we perched off that this morning, closer to the 4.6 mark. So uh, we saw some elevation, but then a flip back. And don't forget, market's still grappling with that news. Late session Friday, 
that Moody's had cut the AAA credit rating outlook to negative from stable. So some question marks on that outlook from the ratings agency. In terms of the Asian markets in session today, picking up on that mixed bag from Wall Street, you can see the Hong Kong market is cautious, down a quarter of a percent, slightly modest to the upside for the other major markets. A little bit more on the Australian market, up eight-tenths of a percent, Arabile. Well, Karen, economists polled by Reuters mostly expect the Fed will keep rates where they are when the central bank next meets in December. However, one lender has made a big call on what's next longer term. UBS strategists expect the Fed to cut rates by as much as 275 basis points next year. That's almost four times the amount expected by the broader market. It also comes based on a call that the world's largest economy will fall into recession by the second quarter. Let's get to Emma Wall, Head of Investment Analysis and Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Emma, we're setting up for a major data point today. There is a view in the market that if the core, this is the non-volatile element of inflation, is a beat or a miss, then it could have ramifications for the Fed. What do you think? I think the Fed holds from here. And this inflation number is extremely important, but the economy is still on a knife edge and they've got to be extremely careful about any move they make from here, spooking the market, but indeed having big ramifications for corporates and for consumers. I'm not quite as bearish as UBS. I don't think we are going to go into a deep recession next year in the US and therefore have to have those associated rate cuts. But I do think that this is not an economy that is firing all cylinders and therefore the Fed has got to tread very carefully. Emma, it sounds like you think something is going to break here if the Fed is not careful. But what we've seen is that the consumer has been uh, fairly resilient. Still, we saw it in the third quarter GDP numbers. We've had uh, the fade on the petrol or gasoline prices, we call it, in the United States, which can, of course, then encourage consumers to spend up again. Is the consumer a problem here for the Fed if those behaviours are not changing anytime soon? I mean, the consumer strength is, is a double-edged sword because, of course, consumer strength is keeping the economy alive. You know, the U.S. economy in particular is extremely driven by consumer spending. The thing about consumer spending, as you say, is it then becomes very sensitive and indeed can recreate inflation itself and then becomes a self-perpetuating problem. So it's all about supply and demand. If a consumer is strong, they buy more, push prices up. So it's that, it's that consumer has that pivotal role to play. I think you're absolutely right on oil prices there. You know, we are now thinking that $150 a barrel doesn't seem like that unreasonable to expect, given everything that's unfortunately happening in the Middle East and the sort of geopolitical tensions there. So the consumer is really driving this economy, but the consumer absolutely has the power to derail the economy, too. Yeah, Emma, good morning to you. How much reliance then do you place on the retail sales figures as well in a time when, of course, as we're speaking about now, the consumer being the key uh, factor with regards to the consistency and the stability of the U.S. economy right now? Well, obviously in the fourth quarter, so retail sales typically get a bump in the fourth quarter because we do obviously have Christmas, Thanksgiving. We've also got Diwali in the fourth quarter this year, so we're calling it sort of the golden quarter. All of that sort of encourages spending. We've also seen some figures that say that actually consumers are expecting to spend more this Christmas than they did in previous years, although that's come down from the year before. So something like 38% of people were expecting to spend more money last year, and it's down to sort of mid and low 30s this year. So the retail the retail spending is really important, but I wouldn't take Q4 as indicative of, of what is to come for next year because, of course, we always see a bump in this quarter.
Yeah, um, you had spoken just about no big moves happening uh, in the bond market going into next year. So are you, are you suggesting perhaps that they offer even greater value going into next year because there could be a, um, a sustainability there? Or would you then shift and, and shift your focus to equities? Well, I'll caveat my comment of no big moves. No big moves from the Fed. I do think there will be moves in the market because I do think there'll be volatility. We've seen over the last six months actually the power that Yellen has on bond yields because of that supply-demand piece that we've been talking about. So I do expect there to be volatility. But actually, this creates opportunities, we think, in particular for active fund managers and people who are actively buying in the market rather than just a passive, passive fund. And we are actually very bullish on fixed income from here because you are either rewarded with income or you're rewarded with growth. Now, I don't think that we will have that 275 basis point cut that UBS was predicting next year from the Fed, but you still then get rewarded with income. This is actually quite an attractive entry point for fixed income, more attractive than it has been, I'd even suggest, for multiple decades. That's not to say that we're off equities entirely. We just think that a much longer term view is needed here because there are some really attractive valuations in the market. But again, we are expecting 2024 to be a volatile year. We're seeing some valuation opportunities within UK equities, although the political environment is interesting at the moment. Maybe we'll come on to that. And we're also seeing some opportunities within emerging markets, in particular China, where we think there's just so much bad news priced in. But we're really urging our investors to take the longer term view here because 2024 is going to be a mixed bag and volatile. From there, we see the opportunities. Emma, you mentioned the politics. We have the House Speaker trying to come up with a plan to avoid another shutdown. Moody's was talking about uh, some of the politics as it changed its outlook on uh, the U.S. debt. And does any of this touch the side when it comes to your analysis on the uh, debt profile of the U.S.? And it's very difficult to call. One of the things that we are looking at more rather than certainties is uncertainty. That is, it's very difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen with politics. But what we can say is how much uncertainty that we want to sort of bake into our predictions. And uncertainty is high at the moment. We have something like 40 countries going into election next year. You know, in particular, we've got the US and the UK, probably, although potentially it could be kicked into the year, year after that for the UK. And so the sort of geopolitical tensions, particularly dependent on who we get in the White House, who we get in Downing Street, what happens with international relations in particular there. We've got Biden and Xi meeting today. That will be a really key relationship for the next presidency. So it's more the uncertainty that we're looking at. And that's what's causing the volatility we've been talking about. Emma, we've got to go. We've got a ton of guests lined up this morning. But thank you so much for joining us first up at uh, just after six hour local time here in London. Emma Wall with us, Head of Investment Analysis and Research at Hargreaves Lansdale. Now for expert analysis ahead of today's inflation print, don't miss Jumana's conversation with former St. Louis Fed President James Bullard. That interview is coming up at 11.30 CET. And later on today, our U.S. colleagues will speak to ARK Invest Chief Kathy Wood. Don't miss that interview. It's a first on CNBC. Now, former UK Prime Minister David Cameron returned to frontline British politics in a major reshuffle on Monday as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak sacked Suella Braverman as Home Secretary in the aftermath of con controversial comments on homelessness and the police response to pro-Palestinian marches. James Cleverly was moved from the Foreign Office to replace Braverman as Home Secretary with Cameron having to be appointed to the House of Lords in order to take the Foreign Secretary's slot. 
Now, the move is controversial as Cameron, best known for his decision to call the Brexit referendum seven years ago, is not an elected member of parliament and as a lord will not have to face members of parliament in the House of Commons. Now, Cameron addressed the issue of accountability with UK reporters. I will be held to account in the House of Lords, but I have to account to for, for myself and for the government, and of course Andrew Mitchell and a very talented team of ministers at the Foreign Office will be held to account in the House of Commons. I'll obviously appear in front of the House of Commons Select Committees as appropriate to answer the questions. And of course, this government, my role in it, all of that will be accountable to the electorate at the general election when it comes. Well, I don't think anyone saw this coming until we no. saw Cameron going back into number 10. And we all kind of went, Just as oh, we went oh, off air, exactly, that's exactly yesterday, what happened, yeah. Just as we were closing out the programme, we saw in a peripheral vision that he was heading into number 10. And I, and I suppose it kind of gives a clear sentiment that Rishi Sunak, perhaps looking for a little bit of a hard hitter, is in and around a year off from elections uh, here in the UK and probably looking for a hard hit on the trade perspective, on the trade uh, side of things. This is somebody, of course, who's handled uh, that side of things a lot. But there are many question marks with regards to, yes, accountability, as we've just been speaking about there, but also just integrity with regards to uh, some of the uh, uh, other work that has come out with regards to him, everything from what is a scandal, uh, this side of the pond then called the Grinsill scandal as well, so something that some may also be looking towards. But I also found very interesting overall, Rishi Sunak did put through quite a few changes actually and played was a reshuffle of more than just those positions you just saw there. Uh, and the one that really interest was of, of keen interest, I suppose, was Laura Trott, who was the pensions minister, has now been moved from that portfolio to chief secretary to the treasury. Um, and the significance of this is because obviously that moves Laura Trott then to number two, ultimately, in the treasury position. It makes her responsible for public expenditure and spending reviews. And interestingly, both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak held that position before they moved up to, of course, uh, vice or oh, well, chancellor then for Rishi Sunak and ultimately prime minister for both. The headlines very much seize imp on the fact that this does not help Rishi Sunak push the narrative that he's a changed candidate mm. by bringing back a, a very old face to the cabinet. But uh, one other point here, does it put Brexit on the agenda again? Yeah. I mean, the, the role that uh, David Cameron played in pivoting the country towards Brexit, just as the issue was dying a little bit, I think, and, uh, you know, putting a little bit of water between that major decision, does it put it back on the agenda for some voters? Yeah, and ask the question as to whether it shouldn't have happened or, you know, how many times will he get asked about it? Does he regret it? All of those aspects could certainly be uh, ones that uh, could be asked of him. I mean, he went on to say, however, that he believes in public service. So we'll see how long that goes for. Coming up on the show, German industrial conglomerate Bosch says it expects a softening in consumer demand, but that it is using this time to prepare for the next wave of AI-driven technology. We're going to bring you Annette's exclusive interview with the CEO, Stefan Hartung, that is coming up on the show. Also, UBS is forecasting 275 basis points in rate cuts from the Fed next year. Jemana is at the UBS conference in London, where she'll be getting the house view. And flexible office space IWG is snapping up sites left by its bankrupt rival WeWork across London. We'll speak to the CEO that is coming up at 8.45 CET.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Numbers stained across from Foxconn, but one of the biggest news stories around Foxconn has really been the decision to part ways with uh, a company in India. It was meant to be expanding out its semiconductor operations there, uh, but uh, decided to pull a pin on a $20 billion factory. So that is going to be uh, coming up, no doubt, in some of the, the questioning today. Foxconn has uh, produced a nine-month net profit of 88 0.95 billion Taiwanese dollars. The uh, company has reported a Q3 net profit of 43.1 billion. This is uh, versus a much lower analyst forecast in the range of 34.5 billion. Now, Foxconn obviously quite key in terms of what it's seeing on the demand side as we talk about devices for uh, mainly iPhones and smart other smartphones, but also in terms of some of the connectables and what it sees in the Internet of Things. So the uh, company sees its Q4 revenue to slightly decline year over year, one of the uh, guidance uh, comments just crossing. Just to address what we had on that net profit beat, uh, the uh, 34.89 billion expected in a poll of analysts uh, by S&P Global Market Intelligence. Uh, so uh, the number 43.1 billion, well and truly above that number. On the 2023 revenue guidance, so we're hearing Q4 will be slightly lower. 2023 overall, though, to slightly decline year over year. The previous forecast was for a slight decline. So they are calling a drop here. When it comes to Q4 revenues for smart consumer electronics, they are to slightly decline year over year in the fourth quarter as well. So some softening is coming through in some of the, the forecasting here from Foxconn. But I think that narrative is something we've seen lately around some of the other recent numbers, of course, at Apple, that the market is still seeing somewhat of a reset here. Q4 revenues for cloud and networking products to decline year over year as well. So it's touching various different parts of the business. When it comes to computing products, Q4 revenues for those products to decline as well. So a lot of different touch points here from cloud and networking to computing to smart consumer electronics to decline in the fourth quarter for the company. I just thought I'd very quickly add as well that uh, it's not just it's not so long ago that the Chinese state-run Global Times actually reported last month that uh, Foxconn is actually under normal and legitimate investigation for tax and land issues by mainland authorities. There are expectations, uh, or rather notes as well, that must be put out to that, that uh, this does come after they've been probing as well the billionaire founder, Terry Goh, who's running for president uh, as well in Taiwan. So uh, very interesting other aspect to note on those numbers. And one positive coming through, uh, the silver lining here, and this is around components and other products mm. in the fourth quarter, they do see a significant growth in that area. So one positive today. Yeah, certainly a positive on that one. Let's move on to autos then, where Stellantis will offer voluntary buyouts to nearly half of its U.S. white-collar employees as the automaker works to cut costs. The exit packages will be offered to those workers who are not represented by a union and have at least five years of service. This as the carmaker works to offset a major financial hit stemming from U.S. strike action. 
Earlier this month, Stellantis agreed a new deal with the UAW union, which included a 25% pay rise and improved benefits for staff. The carmaker also said it will invest $3.2 billion into a new battery plant. Siemens Energy will reportedly unveil its agreement with the German government for 15 billion euros in, a state, in state guarantees on Wednesday. That's alongside its quarterly financial earnings. That's according to Reuters. Now, the group has been locked in talks with Berlin and its former parent company, Siemens, after warning it expects to book a 4.5 billion euro loss due principally to impairment charges from its turbine unit, Gamesa. Shares in Siemens Energy rallied 7% in Monday's session on the news of the imminent announcement. Now, the CEO of German industrial and technology conglomerate Bosch has told CNBC he expects global consumer demand to soften heading into next year before enjoying a sharp rebound in 2025. Speaking to Aneta in Berlin, Stefan Hartung said companies should use this phase to prepare the next generation of AI-driven consumer products. In the consumer side of the business, definitely we'll have a tough year coming ahead. But you know how consumers are. At some point in time, they want to have a better life and they should have a better life. So definitely also very optimistic about the consumer demand from 2025 onwards, maybe softly and slowly going up, but it will go up. And definitely this is now the phase to prepare for the next wave of technology, which is coming through AI, through new technology products. Well, Aneta joining us now. And Aneta, I mean, clear signs then that the investment in AI is not going wasted and the preparation in and around that is, is what the Bosch CEO is really uh, looking towards then as well. And just saying that the softening of demand will begin to pick up. Yes, exactly. And that's what we are also seeing the German economy. I think Bosch is, is like a bellwether for the general economy. They do everything from uh, wide goods to industrial goods. They produce heat pumps, but they also supply to the car industry. So they have a finger in like every sort of part of the economy almost. And that's why it's so interesting to talk to uh, the CEO of Bosch right at that moment in time when we start or not start, but when we're talking about the German economy being again the sick man of Europe. That reminds me of like some 20 years ago um, when that was the case and the, the then German government enacted a wide range of reforms to liberalize the labor market, but also other markets. So it, the key question is whether we are at the comparable point in time or whether this time it's just like a little softening of the economy and then the economic model of Germany can rebound. And that's exactly what I ask him, what his assessment of the German economy is right now as we stand here in Berlin. Take a listen. The situation is a bit more soft than we thought, right? And that's because now the effects come through, which we were believing uh, coming from this uh, from this backlog, which we were working on, especially in the automotive industry, that now the demand is actually soft. And you see that also in the consumer side. So you get multiple effects at the same time. You have consumers who are not buying consumer goods that much because they have bought them during Corona times. You have now in the automotive industry that the backlog has been worked out. And finally now the industry also goes into lower investment phases, so that definitely makes it a bit more difficult to go forward. Germany seems to be in a much worse place than other big nations. Why is that and what needs to be done to change that? I think the situation of the global economy in total 
is on a softer spot because we see central banks fighting with interest rates against industrial demand and supply to, to lower the activity downwards. That is causing these effects, and Germany is kind of multiplied on these effects because it's supplying machines and tools and technology for multiplication and production. Therefore, the effect is a bit stronger. But in general, the effects are all over the same on the demand side, with a bit different tweak on the U.S., a bit more demand, and in China and Europe, a bit less demand. Yeah, some critics are saying that the business model of Germany is endangered. I know people are getting very, quite fast in that very harsh verdict, but would you say that's right? Well, the business model of Germany was always to have high-quality, high-technology products available for the world to produce and manufacture further production stages. And that model is still demanded. That's still needed. But it's in a different phase now because right now we are in kind of a trough of the global economy. So now Germany has to reinvent the next level of technology, so has to jump ahead, bring new technology to the world, and then also this cost will go away. Um, where do you see the strengths uh, of Germany in which parts of new technology um, to produce that kind of uh, yeah, products which are the future? Well, look at our company. We are heavily linked also to engine work for cars, so combustion engines and traditional combustion engines. But now we are reinventing everything to a more electrical phase. The same you see in heating systems. We were known for gas heaters. Now we bring in heat pumps. So there you see these transformationary moves. The same time you see still some rock-solid products which everybody will always need, like cooking oven stoves and dishwashers. So there just technology will evolve and you will get better ones in the future. So despite all the pessimism around the German economy, I think the Bosch CEO has actually explained it quite, uh, quite clearly that innovation is at the key of the German economy. It's the backbone of also all these Mittelstand companies, which are actually much more important than the listed ones for Germany as such. So innovation is key, and here Germany is actually doing quite well, especially when it comes to ground research, but also when it comes to um, yeah, developing products for the future. But at the same time, the high energy prices, which is part of another it's topic of the another part of the interview, are a burden for um, energy intensive industries. So it's not only easy and it's not only about being innovative, but also how to tackle those higher prices and staying competitive in that environment. Annette, thank you very much for the update there. Let's push on to Emirates, which will buy 90 more Boeing 777X jets and has added five more 787s to an existing order. The total package is worth more than $50 billion at list prices. This is the Dubai Air Show continues with further deals from other airlines possibly to come over the next few days. Let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, this order of 95 Boeing aircraft from Emirates certainly moved Boeing stock yesterday. What is the sentiment there on the ground? Karen, it's hot. It's certainly hot at the moment. Just take a look at what we're seeing with this latest deal announced right now from Airbus. It has just confirmed the sale of 10 A350-900 jets to Egypt Air, that North African carrier, picking up airplanes from Airbus only in the last few minutes. So keep watch on Airbus shares. When trading gets underway, it could certainly be a catalyst for the stock. Karen, at the same time, we're also hearing reports that Airbus could be on track to make a major deal for as many as 355 jets 
with Turkish Airways as well. We haven't got confirmation of that yet. It's still just early reports at this stage, but it really reflects how both of these plane makers, Airbus and Boeing, are hungry for deals with the Gulf and North African carriers and carriers around this part of the world, and those transactions are flowing. As you mentioned, that mega deal coming out yesterday with Emirates confirming a $52 billion order for 95 aircraft from Boeing. It certainly puts a flag in the ground when it comes to the aviation recovery that we are seeing globally. I spoke with the Emirates president, Tim Clark, for more on this. Of course, the airline revealed a multi-billion dollar record first half profit only last week. Now it's making these new aircraft orders. He says demand for air travel is so hot that if he took delivery of these planes today, he could fill them. Listen in. Well, it's um, a combination of 7779Xs and 7778Xs. You'll drop the X probably in the future. Um, these are the uh, an order that is seeing us expand, extend our uh, network through the next couple of decades. And we'll see the um, existing 7779s coming into play in the year after next. And then we'll take the Boeing order of the 777s to 205 in total. And we have a batch of uh, 787s. We've actually increased the order to 35 of those, of mixture of 787-10s and 7878s. And they give us the tools to be able to grow the network, uh, be able to do a better fit on the type of aircraft we use according to the demand and the sizing of, that, of the unit to that demand. As we go forward, very fuel-efficient aircraft, very environmentally friendly aircraft. Um, so, yeah, we're very excited about it. Are you confident all these planes are going to be delivered on time? You have more than 240 aircraft on order now from Boeing. I think we're, we're kind of getting used to the bumps in the road with regard to the supply chain, both the manufacturers, propulsion and everything else. We still have a very good uh, base of 777s and, of course, 380s. And we've been extending the lives of those to take care of, of those bumps in the road. And we'll continue to do that. So with 155 777s today and the 116 A380s, which we will keep flying to the late 30s, possibly even the early 40s, we've got the ability to deal with, we've got uh, 50 A350s coming uh, starting next year. So the toolbox is now well full. And we've got all the tools that we need to deal with network expansion, bumps in that road, supply chain issues, etc. So we're fairly confident with these orders that we're, we're in a good place. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.